0: Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to First Chronicles chapter 29. We're at the end of our sermon series in the life of David, and we come to 29 here. Uh, a great assembly of Israel has uh, uh, amassed to transfer the throne from David to his son Solomon and to make formal arrangements for the construction of the temple. Um, and as you might know, we, we skipped over you know, quite a bit to try to uh tie, tie up the end of this uh, sermon series. But as you may know, David wanted to be the man to build the temple. But the Lord replied to him, no. Uh, you're a man of bloodshed. You have blood on your hands, in essence. You've killed too many people. The, the temple is supposed to be a place of shalom and, and purity. And so God told him he was not authorized to build the temple. But his son, his successor, Solomon, is... And I think we, we come to the end of David's life. It's a terrific end to his life. The, the last few chapters have been rather bleak, but this one, you know, arguably his, he saved his greatest act for the last. And thus we read 29.1, Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one to whom God is, has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The tact, the... the um, The task is great, because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have provided for this this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, that is gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? And then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God, 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise for your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are all aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name— It comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever, and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees, and to do everything to build the palatial structure for which I have provided. Then David said to the whole assembly, Praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed low and fell prostrate before the Lord the King. The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand male lambs, together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. They ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord that day. Then they acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time, anointing him before the Lord to be their ruler and Zadok to be the priest. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in the place of his father David. He prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. All the officers and mighty men, as well as all of King David's sons, pledged their submission to King Solomon. And the Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal splendor, such as no king over Israel ever had before. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First Chronicles is a book of the Bible, most of us as Christians, we we're, we rarely pay attention to. I mean, when was the last time you read the entirety of First Chronicles? You know, it's, it's been a while, I'd, I'd assume. And even when we do read more obscure Old Testament books, what I've found is we tend to read them rather quickly. We, we, we speed through them. I mean, there's so many details that seem to be extraneous details, and in so doing, we we may end up, you know, missing critical things that would stand out if we just slowed down. I think verse 1 is one of those instances, because if you're going through quickly, it would be very easy to skim over and miss uh, something startling, I think, about verse 1. So David stands up before all the, the leaders of the people of Israel, and he says, let's just read it again, he says, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great uh, um, because this palatial structure is not for man but for the Lord God. And the Hebrew word that is translated there for young and experienced elsewhere in the Bible is translated, quote, as weak, soft, tender, and delicate. (laughs) And you see what's going on. Isn't, uh, he's, wouldn't that be mortifying <laughs> to have your father who's handing over to you the keys, of, the keys to the city, the keys to the nation, stand before all of the people and say, in essence, this man, my son, is soft and weak. I mean, you'd be like, thanks, dad. <laughs> but if you skip back just a few, cha- or a few verses before at the end of chapter 28, and this is one of those instances where the chapter break really doesn't help us very much. We read this, that David, I'm in 28 verse 20, David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, he is with you and he will not fail you or forsake you. For the divisions of the priests and the Levites, they are ready for all the work on the temple of God and every willing man skilled in any craft will help you in all the work. The officials and all the people will obey your every command. Do you see what's going on? David knows that, that Solomon is incapable of doing this great monumentous act. Uh, and he acknowledges that fact publicly before all the people. But the good news, the good news, he's spoken privately to David and has assured David David, I mean, sorry, has assured Solomon. Solomon, you don't have to do everything. You, it, it doesn't all depend upon you. Um, and so we could say, in, in this respect, Solomon is a weak leader. And you notice that the, the title of the sermon is "Weak Leader." Solomon is a weak leader, but that weakness it turns out to be a gift because because it ends up creating space for the rest of all the body to participate in this you know, magnificent project. Um, this great and awesome task of building the temple of God would only be accomplished by God, by Solomon, and by all of the priests who are kind of wrapped up in, into the project and into the success story. It, it, it's beautiful. It's there in the text. You wouldn't see it if you are reading quickly. But... But this weak leader is a gift. And that, of course, is a, is a theme that's regularly repeated, right? Throughout the Bible, he's, God's always giving us weak leaders. We get a Moses. We get a Jeremiah. We get an Abraham. We get a Paul with a thorn in his flesh. So that these weak leaders would, well, A, have to rely upon God to do the work. And, B, would have to rely upon the people of God to be active in utilizing the gifts of God, for the work of God. Um, it, it's beautiful. It's there. I, I find it interesting, if you go back to the 1 Corinthians and you look at Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts in the body, when he talks about how the spirit of Jesus gets distributed you know, out among everyone, it's interesting that no one person has all of the gifts. All of the gifts are spread out to all of you. And the reason that happens, the reason Jesus does it that way, is to create, you know, a mutual interdependence. We, we must rely upon each other in order to do the work. Um, it, it has to involve all of us. And what I notice, <clears throat> I'll just speak, I'll speak personally here. Uh, I notice in myself and other pastors and elders and deacons um, a tendency, we, we will on one hand bemoan our own inadequacies and weaknesses, and on the other hand, we end up trying to do too much. Quite simply, we try to do too much. We think, we do think, we have this Messiah complex, you know, senior pastors especially. It all depends on me. It, you know, all, I've got to figure this out. I've got to lead the church. I've got to do what's right. I've got to, you know, cast the vision. We've got to, and it all depends on me. And you would think... If somebody was truly confessing their own weakness, that would cause them to rely more heavily upon other people when in fact, and maybe you see it in your own life, it ends up being just the opposite. You bemoan the fact that you're weak and then you try to try to do it all yourself. You try to do it too much. I mean, isn't that true, guys, elders, everyone? It, it's, a, it's a problem that plagues churches. That probably has always plagued churches. Um, I know that one of the things we have to do here at All Saints, and we've been trying and we will continue to try, is to rely upon you <laughs> to, to be the body of Christ and to utilize the special endowment that Jesus' spirit has come to fill you with so that you might be the body and we would rely upon you. Like, we've got to do a better job of communicating to you needs and then trusting you uh, to, to meet those needs and fulfill those needs. Maybe one other word I would say on this, and that is, <clears throat> sorry, my, my voice is kind of weak today. What is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift, this is the definition we've used before, a spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and used for the, to, for the building up of the, of the community. It is any ability that you have that is empowered by Jesus' Spirit and used for the good of the body. And one of the ways I've illustrated this in the past is when you as a parent are teaching your child to write their alphabetical letters, uh, their letters for the very first time, they'll hold their pencil and what you will do is you'll curve your hand, your hand will engulf their hand so that under your power, they would learn how to trace it out. And that is exactly what a spiritual gift is, I think. God is curving his hand around your abilities, leading you his guidance, his movement, his strength, his will, in order to fulfill it all. I think it's a great way of of seeing it. And in this story, you notice that the priests participate, um, and you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are the priests. You are the priests of God. You participate in the building up of the worship of God and the temple of God. You are the priests of God. Um, and David goes on and says, and everyone who is skilled in all kinds of different crafts, they participate. And that I think, surely that is the way that the body of Christ is, is meant to operate. That's what we are to be. So yeah, weak leaders, that's the first point. The second point <clears throat> the great gift uh, david 's great Gift, so you see how this fundraising campaign um, <laughs> kicks off. David ends up making an enormous donation. We think that a talent you know a talent is a weight of measurement in the Old Testament. We think a talent was about seventy five pounds of of whatever, and if that 's accurate then David ends up giving 225,000 pounds of gold and 525,000 pounds of silver, which turns out to be 5.5 billion dollars in today's money. Some scholars say that this was David's entire personal treasury, which if true would mean that David, he didn't merely give out of his treasury He gave his treasury. (laughs) He gave it all. He gave every bit of it. And if that's true, then it is a picture of Christ. Here again, he is depicting Jesus for us because Jesus doesn't merely give out of his treasury. He gives gives his treasury. He gives his life as a sacrifice to the Father on our behalf. Well, David's David's gold um, ends up launching uh, the first ever Kickstarter campaign. (laughs) You know, the way that fundraising works or so I've read about and been told is um, you know, some people will get on board with a project when they see it, they, when they see the vision of it. Uh, say you've got a church building project and the architect draws up architectural drawings. That's usually in fundraising campaigns. That's usually a big moment because people can see it and they are excited by it and they give to it. But they say that there's another critical moment what they refer to as the tipping point. And usually that is when you start to break ground on your facility, you start to build something. Um, people start to see that this really can become a reality. Um, other times, if you meet some big fundraising threshold goal, some mark, people begin to see this really can become a reality. And at that point, a tip, yeah, the tipping point is reached and money just starts to to flow in because people enjoy being part of a success story. Um, it, it's almost as if in, in this passage, they reach the tipping point at the very beginning. Because David, I mean, think about it. 5.5 billion dollars is... An entire national economy. <laughs> I mean, an enormous amount of money. But it's his, his crazy money donation at the very beginning was a way to say to the priests and the leaders that this really is something that we can do, that we must do. And there are ample provisions laid up for us um, in the task. The people of Israel, then we read, they donate They donate gold. They donate ju- jewels. They donate precious stones, um, a lot of it. Where did they get all of those things? Where did they get the wealth they had to donate? Well, David says in his prayer, of course, it all comes from God. But like, like humanly speaking, where did they get the wealth from? And I, think, I can only think of two places. One, it came by way of conquest as Israel goes out to fight her battles and subjugates other nations uh, you know, part of the, sp- the, the spoils of war were theirs, and, and they came by it that way. But intriguingly, the, you know what the second way is? They got it from Egypt. Remember, on the night as they were headed out, God had told them go to your Egyptian neighbor and ask them for, for a gift, a provision for your journey. And they end up plundering the, the Egyptians of all of this great wealth. And so what I think is happening here, it's, it's, the, it's the, the jewels of the exodus, the jewels of redemption. They're giving gold bracelets and rings and Egyptian heirlooms, antiques of immense value. That is their offering unto the Lord. It's beautiful. It's 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 stunning. And yeah, they, of course, they give them, they give their very best. Now, the way that I'd like to apply this passage uh, to all saints is actually not towards our building campaign um, because there's not a one-to-one correlation between the temple of the Lord and the building of all saints. You know, um, it's very important we recognize God has not promised us a building. He never made that promise to us. And if we never achieve our goal to actually have our own building, it won't be, that will not mean that God has been one ounce less faithful to us. He never made us that promise. But what he did promise, he promised this, that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He gave us a promise that the gospel wins. Um, he gave us like a plentiful endowment of his Holy Spirit. And I look out on the room um, here this morning. I'm really amazed. Like, it was hard to let the church plant go. I mean, it, that hurt. It. I feel like we've just been climbing out from underneath the pain of that moment. But I mean, I look out today and like nearly all the seats are full. It's like everybody, new people have shown up. God sent, sent new people with gifts. And um, we have an ample provision of the spirit here to like be to be the church, to be this living, breathing, beautiful body of Christ um, that where the joy of the Lord is present, and where um, fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and children are all being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ like That's what I care about, and that's what he has supplied for us to do. Maybe he's also supplied the money somehow, and I don't know how, to get a building. But the most important thing he has supplied, it's here. It's in you. Um, And then I just look out at the city of Meridian. I look at the Treasure Valley, and we see so many people moving to this place. If you were to just Take out of the demographic all the LDS people, and you just looked at everybody else who is non-LDS in the Treasure Valley. You know the, the one thing that would stand out to you: how overwhelmingly secular the Treasure Valley. This, the Treasure Valley is is utterly and completely secular. It, it really is. And you know how how Peter describes. That, he, he calls that, because he says it in one of his letters, that you've been delivered from that. He calls that the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. Like, we have so many people who live here or are moving here who live in the kingdom of darkness for which God is going to, by his grace, call them out of that kingdom and into the kingdom of his marvelous light. For he said, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And that's what gets me excited. Um, both the, you know, taking existing Christians and taking them into greater spiritual maturity and taking so many people out there who do not know the Savior and, and leading them. Um, that, if I could put it this way, that is the success story that God is calling us into. Like that's really what should energize our hearts. It does mine. Buildings are tools to to help and aid that, but what really matters is the Spirit's work. Amen? Amen? Let's imagine that a news reporter shows up to the great Israel assembly of 1 Chronicles 29. He arrives on the scene, and he wants to chronicle this event. He wants to describe to Eager readers why this took place. What is happening? Uh, What are the reasons that he might give for the uh, incredible generosity? Well, he might say that David is a charismatic leader. You know, yeah, you always have to have a charismatic leader with your movement. Um, David understands the psychology of fundraising. You know, check that box. The leaders of the people set an inspiring example for everyone else, which they did without a doubt. Um, Or maybe Jehiel or or the financial officers of the corporation. uh, They won the trust of the people and they they could be trusted with, you know, all of this wealth that was donated. Or maybe the economy was bullish that year, right? And then the camera pans over to the recently purchased temple site. And some voiceover uh, says in the background... This is where the temple will stand someday, thanks to the amazing generosity of people like you. You know, um, that's the human perspective. All of that is presumably right. And it's not what matters. It's not what matters at all. What matters is everything that he communicates in his prayer of 10 through 13 and then particularly in verse 14. What really matters on this day, this First Chronicles 29 day, is not what you can see with human eyes. It is the, the great invisible reality of an awesome God who is behind it all. And that's what David, he praises the Lord. Let me read it to you. This is our God. Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Like, this is what you should read on Thursday this week. Just belt this out before you have your Thanksgiving meal. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength. Now, our God, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. I should have structured it a little differently the way I printed it in your bulletin, but there is a break, at least in my Bible, there is a break from 13 to 14, and I I think it's a significant one. What we might say about 10 through 13 is David has prayed something that is orthodox, that is true, that is wonderful, that you know, good, solid Jewish orthodoxy. Uh, We print up our prayers in the bulletin every week. We'll a lot of times pray, you know, good, solid, true prayers. But look with me. Please look with me at verse 14, because it's almost like a light switch. Flips. After, you know, solid, true orthodoxy, we hit verse 14. And for me, I may be misreading it, but for me, but who am I, but who am I, and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Do you feel it? It's almost like he goes from praying orthodoxy to experiencing orthodoxy. It's almost, I could almost imagine him like weeping from 13 to 14. It's like, this is you, and who are we that we get to participate in this glorious thing, and, and you know um, you can never you can never anticipate when that's going to happen to to anybody, when you move from the moment of saying it to like feeling it in the marrow of your soul, and you cannot manufacture it. I think church is getting a lot of a lot of uh, problems by trying to manufacture that change. You can't do that. But maybe this has happened to you before. You've been praying the Lord's Prayer. You pray it for the umpteenth time. You, so many times we pray the Lord's Prayer, we do so on autopilot. But, but maybe some, one of these moments you come to the, the words... Hallowed be thy name. And it's like the light switch flips. And you want that more than anything else in the world. Your whole body yearns for thy kingdom to come. Thy will be done. And I want that more than anything else. Anything else in my whole life. And there you've experienced it. You've not just prayed it. You've experienced it. And that's what we want. That's what we want for ourselves. That's what we want for our kids. Isn't it? It's, it's not to, to just go through the liturgy by rote, but it's, it's for it to explode inside our hearts. Very interestingly, if you look at verses 1 through 7, there's a word that's repeated throughout verses 1 through 7. Uh, I'll tell you what it is. You can test me later and see that I got it right, but it's the word gold. And then they you know, brought their gold, and, and they brought this gold, and there was gold, 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 gold repeated like seven times, from verse eight onward, there's another word that gets repeated over and over again. Guess what that word is? It's the word heart. (laughs) It's the word heart. It becomes the beating. This whole project of generosity and joy becomes the beating of their heart. You know, I, I hope that the way that we communicate our faith to our kids is is that is that i can 't believe it god i can 't believe that you created me and created all of this and then decided to make me part of your bride i can 't believe that you, you wrote this tale, the tale of a great prince who comes to rescue his bride from the clutches of a fierce dragon and makes all of these outsiders ambassadors of the prince even more part of the prince 's family i can 't believe it. it is so good it, it makes it fills me so much with joy. Um, I'm generous with my wealth and my possessions simply because I can't believe it. This is so good. Like, if we communicate that faith to our kids, then that's the type of faith that transfers. Um, I mean, if we do the just sullen faced, read it kind of faith, um, even if it's true what we're saying, that does not. <clears throat> well, to wrap things up, um, I told you that one of my great interests in preaching the sermon series was to see all the different ways that Jesus Christ is uh, reflected in David's life. We we could put it this way, that David is a shadow of Christ. A friend of mine was talking to me about it this week. It's really an excellent metaphor because if we were to look at a shadow on the ground— uh, you can tell certain features about the person who casts the shadow, right? You could maybe determine um, uh, he's about six feet tall. He's fairly skinny. Um, he's got a big lumpy nose. He's got big ears. He has long hair, short hair. There are certain outlines of the features you can see. There are other features that you cannot. You can't tell from a shadow if he has blonde hair Red hair, blue eyes, green eyes, none of that. You, but you can see the, the distinct outline. And in David, we see Christ's shadow. And that's what got me so excited about preaching the series. Um, how do we see that? Well, we saw in the very first sermon that Jesus or David is the son of Jesse, chosen from among his brothers to be the shepherd of Israel, though he doesn't possess the external characteristics of kingship, Nevertheless, he is a man after God's own heart. And all of that, doesn't it? All of that describes Jesus. Uh, We saw David as the giant slayer, or as I tried to point out in the David and Goliath sermon, the dragon slayer. Because if you remember, Goliath, he stood in the field of battle with this bronze, red, scaly armor on him. And he looks like a red dragon, shimmering in the sunlight. But Christ has decapitated him, he, he, he crushed the serpent's head on the cross and by his resurrection. He did that in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, that he will strike you on the heel, but you will crush him on his head. And we saw that happen. Um, we saw it, how David, David feigned insanity and played the fool in front of King Achish, the king of the Philistines. David did that to save his own neck. But God but Jesus became god 's own fool to save to save ours. Well, we saw how David refused to slay King Saul in the cave, but he stepped outside and he called upon God publicly to vindicate him, and Christ you know, refused to call down fire from heaven on the villages that didn 't trust in him. Um, but he trusted in his father to vindicate him in the resurrection. We saw Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, the crippled who has nothing, who has absolutely nothing, not even the power of his own legs. And yet he is elevated into the royal court and seated like a prince at the kingly table, which is exactly what happens to us. And that was five sermons. (laughs) I think I preached like 12 of them and there's seven more. Like Jesus is in all of it. Jesus is beautifully in all of it. Um, and so here's how maybe, I guess, here's how I'd wrap the whole thing up. There is an incredibly powerful cultural narrative that exists today, which says, your life only has meaning if you have romantic love. Your life, the good life, is only possible if you are romantically coupled with someone else. If you think about it, that narrative is the narrative of every heterosexual affair, of, of every ungodly divorce, of every marriage outside of the faith, and, and, and frankly, of, of all homosexual marriage as, as well. You know, the gay, the gay marriage movement. That... You must be romantically coupled with another person to experience real life. That's our cultural narrative. That is that is a lie. The real life that God has called us to is this satisfaction in Christ. Um, and I, what I want you to say, the person I want you to be, the, the, the man, the woman, the child that I urge you to be is the one who says, There is nothing more precious to me than Jesus, absolutely nothing. That I am fully, fully satisfied with Jesus Christ, my King, my Deliverer, my Lord, and I am willing to storm the gates of hell if that's where He calls me to. Um, my heart, remember Calvin's motto, my heart, Lord. I present to you promptly and sincerely. Here it is. It is yours. It is yours forever. You know, and boom, that's the explosion. It's not just orthodoxy that you say. It's it's your experience. And if this uh, sermon series on the life of David, if David's life has done anything to move you in that direction, then thanks be to God. Um, it's been a success. But my one hope, my one prayer is that you would marvel forever in Christ. Amen.